This program features interviews with respected healthcare industry experts on current topics of substantial national importance. Your host for the program is David Intricasso, a DC-based healthcare policy analyst and researcher. We invite you to comment on the program by visiting thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Now, here's David. Welcome to the Healthcare Policy Podcast. Again, I'm the host, David Intricasso. During this podcast, we'll discuss the Trump administration's recent decision to make work requirements a precondition for Medicaid coverage. With me to discuss the topic is Professor Sarah Rosenbaum, the Harold and Jane Hirsch Professor of Health Policy and Law at the Milken Institute School of Public Health at George Washington University. Professor Rosenbaum, welcome to the program. Thank you very much for having me. Uh, Professor Rosenbaum's bio is, of course, posted uh, on the podcast website. Uh, briefly on background, this past January 11th, CMS Administrator Seema Verma forwarded a letter to state Medicaid directors announcing, quote-unquote, a new policy designed to assist states in their efforts to improve Medicaid enrollee health and well-being through incentivizing work and community engagement among non-elderly, non-pregnant Medicaid beneficiaries. The letter went on to say a work prerequisite, quote-unquote, should be designed to promote better mental, physical, and emotional health in furtherance of the Medicaid program's objectives. This change constitutes a major shift in the Medicaid program that has historically been defined as a program dedicated to increasing and strengthening health care coverage for the poor. The day after Ms. Verma's letter was forwarded, CMS approved Kentucky's 1115 Medicaid waiver that imposes work requirements, again, as a precondition for coverage. With me again to discuss this change is Professor Saren Rosenbaum. Listeners may recall I interviewed Professor Rosenbaum in January 2014 concerning EMTALA or the Emergency Medical Treatment and Labor Act. So with that as background, Professor Rosenbaum, since we're talking about this policy change in context of Medicaid 1115 waivers, can you briefly explain the purpose of these waivers? Sure. So the the Medicaid, the excuse me, the Social Security Act. So not the Medicaid statute itself, but the Social Security Act, which the Medicaid statute is part of, has since 1962 authorized the HHS secretary to undertake demonstrations and experiments that promote the objectives of the program that is the subject of the demonstration, so that if the secretary finds that a demonstration promotes the objectives of a particular Social Security Act program, and the the, the programs that are the focus of 1115 are the state-administered public benefit programs. So if the secretary finds that there is a uh, that a particular demonstration promotes the objectives of the program, then the secretary is authorized to undertake an experiment or demonstration. And the statute is an experimental or demonstration statute. It's, it's not unilateral authority to simply change a program wholesale. Uh, only Congress can change its programs. You can't delegate authority to the executive branch to rewrite your statute for you. So that's why... Uh, the, the, this 1115 authority is written as experimental authority. And um, the whole purpose was, um, at, as far as the Kennedy administration was concerned, and Congress in, in um, 
authorizing or in, in enacting the law was concerned. The whole purpose was to figure out new and better ways to get public benefits to people. Uh, and in the case of Medicaid, um, the objectives of the Medicaid program are actually built right into the statute itself. The statute tells us that the Medicaid program's objective is to get medical assistance to people who need it. So that's the basis of, of the actions taken by HHS. Okay, thank you. So let's, uh, let's get into this uh, with my asking. The January 11th letter was not unanticipated. Uh, the Secretary then, uh, Secretary Price, along with Seema Verma last March, uh, sent a, a letter concerning their take on the Medicaid expansion on the ACA. And then, as you noted in an essay in November, uh, Ms. Verma previewed this policy in a speech three months ago. Can you uh, summarize uh, then-Secretary Price and current Administrator Verma's view on the Medicaid program generally? Yeah, well, their their view on Medicaid is um, that it's a program that certainly has some benefits, uh, but it's also, as far as they're concerned, a very troubled program uh, that... Um, uh, whose chief trouble, actually, at the moment would be that it's helping the wrong people. Uh, as far as Administrator Verma is concerned, Medicaid's purpose was and remains today, its correct purpose remains helping only certain vulnerable poor subpopulations. And she has expressed the view that Congress's expansion of Medicaid to reach low-income adults runs counter to uh, uh, what she perceives to be correct policy. So here is uh, a, 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 an administrator of a federal agency telling Congress that basically it made a profound policy error in expanding Medicaid. And she views it as her mission to restore Medicaid to its original structure. But interestingly, she is encouraging work demonstrations not only for the expansion population, but for the traditional populations who she says are the true needy people. So she obviously doesn't think that the traditional populations are the true needy people either uh, because uh, she's eager to have work demonstrations that reach classic very, very poor uh, Medicaid adults. Okay, so in your uh, defining the 1115, it's a demonstration that would, in the demonstration, provide evidence for an improvement. So in this instance, what evidence exists, or what evidence does the administration or Ms. Verma claim exists for the change in this Medicaid policy? Well, um, the evidence sort of ranges from non-existent to um, uh, basically uh, not, not sound. Um, so there seem to be two hypotheses working in, uh, in, in, these, in these proposals, one or in the solicitation of state demonstrations. One is the hypothesis that work makes you healthy. Um, now, there are certainly 
many studies that show a correlation between people who are healthy and people who work. If you're healthy, you're obviously, it's sort of you, it, for somebody like me, a lawyer, I sit and scratch my head and wonder why anybody would have to demonstrate this, that it, it's more likely that people in good health will work more hours, longer hours, uh, and probably will have higher income. Uh, and that, of course, is borne out. Um, so that's a different matter from saying that work will make you healthier. Uh, it, it is, of course, axiomatic that, that, that work and health tend to go together. So that's one part of the hypothesis. The other hypothesis that kind of floats around, uh, but because the, the, the solicitation and the Kentucky approval and now the Indiana approval are, are so murky, it's, it's, it's not clear how this how this hypothesis really exists, but it appears that a hypothesis is that giving Medicaid to people just based on their income, on poverty alone, disincentivizes work. And there's absolutely no evidence of that at all. There's there's nothing that would tell us that, for example, in Medicaid expansion states, the employment numbers have dropped if anything, employment numbers have continued to rise as the as the um, economy recovered. Uh, there are some Medicaid expansion states with uh, very low rates of unemployment uh, because, of course, employment conditions in states are determined by many factors other than, I mean, apart from health insurance. Um, and um, then there are some... Medicaid expansion states where unemployment re- remains stubbornly high for, again, for reasons that one would better explain through general economic conditions. So she's got these two hypotheses working, one that work will make you healthier and and the other implicit one that Medicaid availability disincentivizes work. And with those two poorly articulated to non-articulated hypotheses, um, that rest on either no evidence at all or um, evidence that's been misconstrued. Um, she then proceeds to solicit demonstrations that will test two things, really. One is making work a condition of getting Medicaid. And the other, as they put it over and over again, um, creating commercial insurance conditions in Medicaid so that people will learn to use commercial insurance properly, I guess on the assumption that they're going to get jobs with commercial insurance and they don't know how to use it. Now, of course, what we do know about poor people who go back to work is that overwhelmingly they they work at jobs that don't have insurance. So, um, so that's the setup for the demonstrations. Okay. So there's, a, as you've written in several essays over the last few months, there's a confusion here about correlation and causation, and uh, we'll, we'll leave it at that. Uh, before I ask you about um, the anticipated effect and the legality thereof, uh, let me um, ask you to explain in some detail how this will work. So let's just stay with the Kentucky waiver. Can you explain uh, some of the details of the work requirement and le- related provisions in the Kentucky waiver? Sure. The basic outline of the Kentucky waiver is uh, that people will have to work a certain number of hours a month. And if they don't work a certain number of hours a month, 
uh, they would um, lose their benefits. There are exemptions uh, based on medical frailty or uh, having an acute medical condition or pregnancy, just the, just the, the, the pregnancy period, um, all of which would need, of course, documentation um, uh, that, that such uh, exemptions exist. And um, that, so that's one key element. Another key element is um, <clears throat> that you have to uh, pay a premium, and the premiums can be relatively high, uh, as much as when fully phased in, as much as 4% of family income, so higher even than you would pay in the marketplace if you're a low-income person. Um, and that you have to essentially re-enroll annually, and if you don't, you're locked out for six months. Um, if you don't pay your premium, you're locked out for six months if you're subject to the lockout. The, the working assumption behind those two uh, elements, premium nonpayment and re-enrollment, um, is that they want to teach you a, about commercial insurance, that you have to pay your premiums and you have to enroll annually or, of course, you you don't, don't get the coverage. Uh, and... The problem with that, of course, is that Medicaid, by definition, is not meant to be a commercial insurance program. It's specifically structured as a safety net program. Uh, it doesn't have the attribute. It, it acts like insurance, to be sure. It pays claims for people who are covered um, and who use covered services, but it's not commercial insurance. And, um, you know, there are plenty of ways to teach people, assuming they ever have access to commercial insurance, how to use commercial insurance besides locking them out of Medicaid. Okay, thank you. Just to note as well, uh, it eliminates dental and vision coverage and ends uh, retroactive coverage, which is definitively a provision in Medicaid not found in certainly commercial uh, insurance. Yeah. Let's, let's yeah. go to uh, the anticipated effect, and let's just stay with the Kentucky, although Indiana sometime shortly after the Kentucky approval, one approval, and there are other states in line for similar waivers. I'll just note those quickly, Arkansas, Wisconsin, Utah, Mississippi, Kansas, Arizona, Maine, and New Hampshire. But back to the anticipated effect, and even in the Kentucky waiver, I'm sure you're aware they guesstimated the effect of coverage uh, for their beneficiaries. Yeah, and Kentucky has estimated a 200,000-person drop, by far the biggest of the of the drops. I mean, there are several things that make Kentucky particularly uh, tough. One is that the age uh, level for being subject to the waiver is all the way up. I mean, it, 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 some of the states, Ohio, has set the age cutoff at 50 or below, um, and that is not the case with Kentucky. And um, Kentucky uh, is assuming um, both a very high age and potentially a lot of people losing coverage to failing to establish medical frailty or an acute condition or not paying their premiums or not going through the redetermination process the way they're supposed to. Uh, so their, their figures, and of course the state's Medicaid expansion is more of an achievement in Kentucky than anywhere in the country uh, in terms of the percentage drop in uninsured rates as a result of the expansion. And so they have that much further to fall, both proportionately and in absolute numbers. Yes, thank you. Just to note, editorializing, 
uh, it's a poor and ill state, uh, just to say, um, amongst other public health statistics, it has the most cancer deaths, uh, the most preventable hospitalizations. It's 45th in instances of diabetes and almost last 47th regarding heart disease. Let's go to your expertise, and that's uh, the legality of all this. Uh, I believe the day after CMS approved the Kentucky waiver, a lawsuit was filed. You've written about it recently, um, as well as others. This is uh, Stewart versus Azar, the secretary, uh, challenging the legality of imposing work requirements. What, what are the legal arguments, just are the more prominent legal arguments here? You certainly suggested them. And do you care to uh, handicap what might be the, um, the outcome of such litigation? Um, well, first of all, um, in terms of handicapping litigation, I'm uh, a strong believer in never doing that, <laughs> especially after years of Affordable Care Act litigation. Sure, yes. Shocked of NFIB versus Sebelius when, you know, a claim never seen in nature, that is the, the, the Medicaid expansion being unconstitutional, right, right, suddenly right. succeeded. Uh, uh, but... Uh, what is true is that this is a case of first impression, that we've never had a Medicaid work demonstration like this. Uh, and uh, it certainly is a case that right on the surface of things stretches the credulity of the secretary's powers under under federal law. That is, there, <clears throat> there, there seems to be no connection between throwing people off Medicaid and the and, and, and promoting Medicaid's objectives. Um, the secretary didn't follow sort of basic federal procedures in developing this demonstration. Um, there was no notice and comment period. I mean, it's a radical departure from, from current policy. And yet the secretary just sort of put out a state Medicaid director's letter and the next day started approving, <laughs> approving projects. Um, this is not the way uh, the federal government's supposed to operate. Uh, so there are procedural grounds that are quite striking in this case, and there is this question about whether a demonstration that is specifically aimed at removing people from the program could ever be considered to be a demonstration that promotes Medicaid's objectives. There have been many demonstrations where there are arguably gains and losses. You know, for example, Indiana. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Indiana uh, did an expansion. The expansion is not nearly as generous as, as an expansion in a straight state plan approval state would be. Uh, but one can argue that um, there were gains to be made and uh, the risks that it wouldn't be quite as broad were outweighed by the benefits. Here, there's no there's no, there's no benefits. I mean, the, the governor was very clear in his proposal that he is undertaking this demonstration in order to reduce the enrollment in the program. Mm -hmm. Uh, And, of course, the administration has been very clear that they're pursuing these demonstrations because the uh, ACA expansion itself is contrary to public policy. So so when you have this kind of, uh, you know, um, situation going on, it's really hard to see how the threshold question of promoting uh, program objectives is even met. And without that threshold question, the demonstration is not legal. Okay. Thank you. We're already at our time boundary. So, uh, Professor Rosenbaum, I appreciate uh, this overview of this major policy again 
shift, and obviously we'll see how this plays out in likely to be many uh, lawsuits. So thank you again for your time. Thank you for having me. You have just heard another edition of the Healthcare Policy Podcast hosted by David Intricasso. To comment on this program or others, to see information about upcoming interviews, to suggest a program topic, or to hear an archive program, please visit our website, thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Thank you for listening, and please listen again soon.